Bullshit is everywhere. Bullshit. Bullshit is rampant. Total fucking bullshit. B -b -b bullshit this makes no fucking sense. I mean, it's just bullshit. Fuck. Bullshit is bullshit. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell. Welcome back to Bullshit Filter, uh, War on Drugs, episode 322. Mm -hmm. How you doing, my uh, other wife of six years? Happy anniversary. And to you. Uh, nothing's in the mail, so you're not getting any tonight. But I just want to let everybody know how effective we're going to be tonight, because we've both agreed on the show that we're doing. First, it was a renaissance, and but we finally decided that it is the bullshit filter. I think that's going to make us much more effective. <laughs> yeah, it, it took us a while to work out what we're actually doing. And we're, we're recording a day earlier than normal, Ray, and why is that? It's because Florence, and if you think about the irony since we were in Florence, but I guess the gods, or the god, is mad at me, so they've sent a Category 4 hurricane my way. I think it's going to miss us, but just in case it doesn't, we are so dedicated to all you people. We're going to record at least one show early so we don't miss the schedule because that's how much you all mean to us. And I might die. This could be my last show. Wouldn't it be funny if Hurricane Florence started dropping Renaissance masterpieces <laughs> from the sky? The Statue of David came crashing through your roof. I call my insurance um, company and go, you're not going to believe this, but I'm, I'm staring at a statue of David in my bathroom right now. Um, I need speaking to get, of yeah. Florence and insurance companies, yeah. you know, my MacBook uh, died on me while we were in Florence, yes. and I took it to the Mac store, and they said, oh, we, nothing we can do about it. You'll have to take it back to the store when you get home. I did right. that. <clears throat> they said, oh, yeah, water damage. Uh, we're going to have to replace the motherboard and a whole bunch of different things. And I put in an insurance claim with my travel insurer, thinking there's no fucking way they're going right. to cover this. They did. No wow. questions asked. They wow. paid out, man. I got notification yesterday. So uh, yeah. I'm shocked. Shocked and stunned, <laughs> knowing with my history with insurance companies, travel insurance. So uh, yeah. that was nice. I they're definitely my guys now. I think it had to do with the fact what water damage that you're speaking of was actually tears from a statue of Mary. I think it's all tied in um, from the Uffizi, but I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. There were spiritual tears. And it is, uh, according to Facebook, the six-year anniversary today of when Ray and I became friends on Facebook. We hooked up. So, I'm uh, friends. Yeah. So I'm a little bit confused by that, though, because uh, six years ago was 2012. We didn't start working together until 2013. Huh. And I didn't know you. Until we started, right? you know, just before we started working together. Yeah. So we must have been friends on Facebook for a year before we started doing a show together. Well, and I honestly didn't know who you were from Adam. I, I, I don't want to start anything, but I think you'll pretty much click confirm for anybody who... Um, yeah, pretty yeah, much. I think maybe I Anybody who shows you. a bit of flesh <laughs> in their profile photo, Boom. which you must have done. Oh, yeah. Um, Confirm. So that's that's something that was that's interesting. So we had uh, we've been friends on Facebook for a year. You hunted me down, yeah, stalked, added right. me as a friend, right. and then 
manipulated me sure. cunningly <laughs> into doing all of the work uh, for the next five years. It's all part of the master plan. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, I did the same yeah. thing to Heather. So um, don't don't feel bad. Well, let's get into this because, uh, as I told you off air, uh, one of my sons told me yesterday uh, he stopped listening to one of our shows because we were (gasps) waffling on too much at the beginning. So we should get into it. Uh, Yeah, go ahead. So uh, in the last episode of the War on Drugs series, and by the way, I'd just like to say I had no idea this was going to go on this fucking long, but um, (laughs) it is. But there's so much to cover. yeah, and I, I'm enjoying it. I'm finding it interesting, the the yeah. ins and outs of how much bullshit went on with the war on drugs. Exactly. So we were talking about the Carter administration last time, and I said that in this episode we would get into the Reagan administration. But I, but before we do get into yeah. R.R., Roger Ramjet, Ronnie <laughs> Reagan, I want to talk about another R. Right. Rico. The Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act that was passed into law actually by Richard M. Nixon in the year of my birth, 1970. Wow. Rico is one of those things that you hear about if you watch enough mob movies, um, as I do, but but uh, and, and, and The Wire and and The Sopranos and The Shield and all these sorts of cop shows, mob shows, but um, the, the story behind it is actually kind of interesting, and I, I'd never read up on it before. Yeah. What about you? No, I mean, I've heard the term in shows, and my mother was a cop, and so we heard um, terminology, but no, it, it meant nothing to me. Did your mother bring anyone down using Rico? Um... Well, I, God, I hate to admit this, but when she was first a cop in Charleston, South Carolina, um, the, she was a part of the crime force that was pretty much using the laws on the books to suppress minorities. And then she bumped that up and came here to University of Virginia and busted uh, students who were either high or drunk. So not exactly mm. front line mm. as far as big Can organized we? crime, but you know. Can we get your mum on the show? Sounds like she was front line on the war on drugs. She was, and she also did some undercover stuff that uh, she's never given me the details about. That would be that would be kind of interesting. Get her on the show. Yeah. I want to get Mark Zuckerberg on the Caesar show because again, I read today that he's a big fan of Augustus. Nice. Um, we have to get him on the show to talk about why he loves Augustus. Okay. And you and your mum. So high profile guests, <laughs> Zuck and. Your mum. Okay. Maybe on the same What's your mum's name? Laura. Laura. You've met my mum. Yes. We've got to get... Yeah. You, you made a pass at my mum. She, well, she rejected you because she, well, she's got standards. I, well, okay. <clears throat> my, my version of the story is this, and I know we're rambling. I made a pass. She rejected me. I insulted her. She physically assaulted me, and then I fell in lust all over again. So it was very complicated. Rico was the brainchild of a law professor called Bob Blakey. Mm -hmm. He had been a federal prosecutor under Bobby Kennedy when Bobby was chasing the mafia in the 60s. And then after Bobby, you know, took took one, took it, (laughs) took it, got a lead sandwich, um, Bob Blakey went on, worked for various Republican members of Congress. And in 1970, he was teaching at Notre Dame Law School and was apparently uh, had a reputation for being obsessed with the mafia. Yeah. And was invited as a result of that to help write a law 
targeting organised crime. Now, people may recall, because we've touched on it in different parts of the show, but the mafia wasn't really acknowledged and treated as a serious thing in the 60s. Um, Bobby Kennedy decided to go after the mafia. J. Edgar Hoover, who was still running the FBI at that stage, had been running it for 30-odd years, um, denied it existed, said it was a myth. Um, he, he didn't really care. Um, he was probably uh, very personally familiar with a number of the mobsters. I mean, he knew everything that was going on because he had sure. every man and his dog bugged. Wow. But uh, for whatever reason, Hoover didn't care. He wanted to bring down the student activists. They were the big enemy. Uh, yeah. And the Negroes, the mob, yeah. just just good, yeah. good, good Italian-Americans <laughs> who wanted to make a buck. Hard-working. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, which, which, you know, when you – here's the thing. When you um, realise that the mob wasn't really taken seriously in the 60s and then you, you, you realise that um, Mario Puzo wrote The Godfather in, I think, 69 that came out and then Coppola, Francis Ford Coppola, turned it into a film in right. 71, 72 – when you realise that the mafia wasn't really a well understood thing in that day, that's it's kind of astounding that they did that. Uh, you know, they, it was probably Mario Puzo's book and Coppola's film that really propelled the mafia into uh, sort of the mainstream. People got an understanding of what the mob was all about for the first time. I mean, there had been you know movies about the mob. I think we. Uh, well, we're going to talk about one of this episode, the Jimmy Cagney movies and that kind of stuff that hinted at some sort of organised crime, but they didn't really uh, tackle it the way that Puzo and Coppola did, getting into the guts of it and making it a little bit even empathetic. But if his book came out in 69, and he obviously had to do research, there's a chance that he might he might have known more about the mafia than the FBI did, at least for a little while or in some degree, which is... Pretty astounding, but you're right. I think I think the media helped um, make it more real in everybody's eyes, and, and like you said on a previous episode, I think they got one or two decades um, pretty much hands off in a lot of ways um, from the FBI, and they were able to make their organizations grow. Yeah, I mean, and I mean, they were chased on and off, um, but not uh, you know not as systematically as they were going to be in the years to come in right. the seventies and eighties. Anyway, getting back to Bob Blakey, um, his concern from his time with Kennedy was that up until that time, when the feds went after the mob, they might put a capo, a captain, or sometimes even a boss in jail for a while, but it didn't really hurt the organisation. It was treated as the cost of doing business by the mobs. Yeah, you go do some some time, you come out, you you still got your money. (laughs) You punch your card, you go Um, right back to it. Right, exactly. It didn't affect the organisation. Um, and he wanted to do something about that, and that's why he came up with the idea of RICO. Now, I thought this was interesting. So just uh, just to give um, a, a historical perspective, you know, the Fifth Amendment says you can't take someone's property without due process of law or without just compensation, and that makes sense. But 
Even as far back as the Revolutionary War, the government could see something if it was quote-unquote offensive to the law, if it, was, if it was an illegal object, like if there's a robber, you can take his gun. During the Prohibition, you can take someone's barrel of whiskey. But but it's pretty narrow, it's pretty focused, and, and, and um, Blakey is actually seeing this as a limitation on what the government can do. So he wants to rework this thing, and he is chosen by the Senate Judiciary Committee to help craft something so the, um, so the law enforcement agencies can have something stronger to work with. If they could take things that are offensive, could they take a podcast? Uh, we would have been gone a long... I think it has to be offensive to the law. We're just uh, offensive to nature, God, and morality. <laughs> People in general. People. I see Apple finally took down uh, Alan Jones's podcasts yeah. and Infowars, and all, and they, they one of the reasons was because it was offensive. I saw that and I went, fuck. It's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of time. Someone's going to report us. If we disappear, if our podcast disappears for some reason, and they can take us off Facebook, yeah, just uh, look for us on the dark web. (laughs) I guess we'll be on the dark web with your your methamphetamines, your tentacle porn, (laughs) and us and Alan Jones. Alex Jones, yeah. We've been AJ. Um, Yeah. Now, the, the, you're right. So the government did have the ability to take some stuff if it was used in a crime or if it was contraband. And the, the technical term for confiscation of illegal objects like that was forfeiture. Mm-hmm. And because these seizures weren't necessarily connected to a criminal prosecution, they were called civil forfeitures. Civil forfeiture. So a prosecutor doesn't need to convict somebody to take away their property. They don't even know, need to know whose property it is. They see a gun lying around, um, and it's not obvious that the gun has is attached to somebody with a license for it. They can take it. Right. They find right. a barrel of whiskey during Prohibition. They can take it. Doesn't matter who it is, yeah. who owns it. Doesn't matter whether or not it's been involved in a crime. Just the very nature of it means that it can be taken. Um, but this was a this was a, a problem when it came to organised crime, because only illegal assets like bootleg ligger or, or illegal slot machines or guns could be taken. Cash <laughs> derived from illegal activities wasn't in itself illegal. Or if you, if you washed your money, right. you, know, you see this all the time in TV and movies, um, they... they make money by selling drugs, then they take that money and they buy a pizza parlor with it yeah. or a massage parlor. Yeah. Or, or both or, together or, combined. Or, a, or a, yeah, a restaurant or a bar or a car wash, like in Breaking Bad. <laughs> um, you can't take that because those right. things aren't necessarily – they're not well, they're not illegal uh, uh, businesses. They're not, right. they're not something that the government has decided in and of itself – is illegal. So this is what Bob Blakey set out to fix with forfeiture. He tried to figure out a way to uh, increase the idea of forfeiture from civil forfeiture to criminal forfeiture. Right. Hard to say that at this hour of the morning without more coffee. Criminal forfeiture. Um, so the law would have more teeth. If, if you got caught doing something illegal, then all of the assets that you had accrued with the money from that illegal activity could be taken away from you. That is how, he figured, you would really get 
to to hurt organized crime. Yeah. Now, again, this is something that's brand new. So um, some people are going to freak out. The civil libertarians, God bless them, uh, they were they were protesting against this, against this. But Blakey was like, no, 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 no. Don't get me wrong. The government is required to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the person losing the assets is guilty of a crime. So you've got that. You've got that safety bar. You've got that guardrail. And as long as that is never disturbed, as long as the line between civil and criminal forfeiture is never blurred, Everything is going to be a okay. Of course, we know where it is today, where cops just pull you over in the US. Right. If they find cash in your car, they just take it yeah. and go, hey, listen, if you want it back, you know, take it to the courts, motherfucker. Right. You go, I can't. You took all my cash. <laughs> I can't afford to go to the courts. Hey, oh, well. you know, sorry. Sucks to be you. Tough. T- yeah, <laughs> tough titties. But that wasn't Blakey's original plan. And that's, you know, it's the, the, the infamous slippery slope you see here with these things. Right. Um, Bob Blakey's still around. I looked him up. Seems like a reasonable guy. Yeah. Um, had, a, had an idea for how to crack down on organized crime, introduced this idea, and it went out of control. It's a bit like old uh, George True. Kennan in right. our Cold War yeah. show. Yeah. You know, the guys who built the atom bomb, Oppenheimer and, and, and Einstein, who came up with or helped sell the idea. Um, all these guys regretted it later on. Um, you throw some, sometimes you throw these things into the political mix and yeah. uh, they, take, you know, 10, life. 20, 50 years later, it, yeah, yeah, they do get out of control. It's true. Um, but. One of the things that Blakey was working on with this new criminal forfeiture was broadening the definition of what constituted organized crime. It wasn't just whiskey and casinos. He figured it should include things like stock brokerages or banks or anywhere that Mm -hmm. modern crime syndicates could extend their businesses. As I said before, they they try and – what's the – you know, it's a great line in The Godfather about becoming legitimate mm-hmm. over time. I can't remember the line I'm thinking of now, but um, you basically, uh, you know, you start off doing illegal activities sure. and then eventually you try and become legitimate. Godfather Part 3, Michael is basically legitimate. He's uh, running real estate businesses mm-hmm. and banking businesses and he's getting... You know, not knighted, but some sort of thing from the Pope. Right. Um, Every time I get out, know. they try to pull me back in, or something like. Yeah, that. Yeah, right. But yeah. he was he was trying to go legitimate. Yeah. I mean, I think it's in the Godfather Part Two. I think it's in the beginning in the wedding scene, and he says to Kay, "You know, in five years, the Corleone family will be strictly right. legitimate." Nice. That was the line I'm thinking of. That was his plan. Yeah. Um. You know, but circumstances uh, beyond, bigger than him conspire to bring him back yeah. in just like for Blakey circumstances much much bigger than him now he did this he did the standard stuff gambling murder kidnapping extortion but like you said he added the um, financial aspect to it bankruptcy uh, fraud securities fraud drug trafficking copyright infringement um, money laundering that kind of stuff and so he but what's going to happen is his his idea, which I think is a legitimate idea, as is, is going to then get dumped into the political process where other people are able to massage it and form it into what they want. And the list of what it takes to be to um, be a, uh, a part of a criminal conspiracy is going to grow and grow and grow. So he started out, but then it gets completely out of his control and very quickly. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, now, he apparently uh, was a big fan, while he was writing the law, of uh, Edward G. Robinson's film Little Caesar from 1930, <laughs> where what? Edward G. Robinson plays a gangster called Rico Bandello. Nice name. Uh, yeah, it is a nice name. Yeah. I've got a bit, uh, a bit of a clip here for you. Eat Montana. Uh, what's that got to do with the price of eggs? Ah, uh, plenty. Diamond Pete Montana. He don't have to waste his time on cheap gas stations. He's somebody. He's in the big town doing things in a big way. Yeah, look at us. Just a couple of nobodies. Nothing. Is that what you want, Rico? A party like that for you? Caesar Enrico Bandello. Honored by his friend. Well, I could do all the things that fella does and more. Only I never got my chance. Why, what's there to be afraid of? Now, when I get in a tight spot, I shoot my way out of it. Why, sure. Shoot first and argue afterwards. You know, this game ain't for guys that's soft. <laughs> Classic Edward I, G. Robinson. I don't want to show how Hey, what is a guy, eh? Yeah, I don't want to show yeah. up or anything, but if I was a cop on the beat, I could pretty much tell who the criminals are. By the way they spoke. Yeah, see, that's what I'm going to do. I shoot my arrow. I'll ask all these questions later. See, I would, boom. I, I don't need, that's all the evidence I need. I'm going to Rico your ass. I'm taking everything. What are you talking about, Kappa? Right there. Right there. You're criminal. Bust it. Uh, it's what, a, oh. what, a, what a classic accent. Yeah. <clears throat> so in that movie... Rico gets killed by police. Spoiler alert. It's been out since 1930. Sorry if I've ruined that for you. Um, but here's the boss, big boy, what you called me in Vegas, is left untouched. I, I called you Little Caesar because uh, we were staying at Caesar's Palace and right. you called me big boy. Um, now, Blakey wanted his new laws to be able to get to big boy. And so when it when it time, came time for him to, to come up with a name for this, he combined some of the other names of other acts that were out there about how you tackled racketeering, mm-hmm. how you tackled corrupt organisations, and he called it the Racketeering Influence of Corrupt Organisations Act, RICO. Um, and apparently, to this very day, Blakey has a life-size painting of Edward G. Robinson as wow. Rico Bandello hanging above his desk, which sounds pretty fucking badass to me. <laughs> Almost as badass as the painting of me right. that James Caffin has been working on for the last couple of years where I'm a gangster. Um, <laughs> and I'd like to give a shout-out because James Caffin is getting married uh, this week. So uh, congratulations to our friend James, little Jimmy. <laughs> Now what you don't And now yeah. now that you've now that you've been on your pre-wedding honeymoon right. and you're married yeah. finish Get the your, fucking painting. Yes. Jesus it's been 2 years man like You can't rush You know art. yes yes I've spent like 6 years trying to finish my latest book but <laughs> uh, and different. nearly 2 years working on my Jesus documentary but come on this is just a, it's like Brush on canvas, yeah, man. Like, no stroke. fucking excuses. Just stroke. Anyone yeah. can do it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just stroke it. Just stroke it. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a problem that doesn't solve, and I can't. <laughs> anyway, I was surprised. So the, so the RICO thing becomes law, and I think by the time six, uh, Nixon signs it, there's like 
the list has grown to like 35 crimes in total, 27 federal crimes, eight state crimes. Uh, and there's, there's just a lot of to it. But the point is, this thing has expanded. And I was surprised that Nixon's, the man in charge of his Justice, Justice Department, John Mitchell, hated the idea of RICO. He's like, no, 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 no. If you want to be a good prosecutor, if you want to be a good cop and bust people, you need good criminal laws that are narrow, that are focused, that, that really, I, I, it's, it's clear about what I can go after and what I can't. None of this um, um, blurred stuff. And so Rico was the exact opposite of that. And he just didn't like it at all. In fact, this thing is in some ways going to sit dormant for quite some time, even though it's a law on the books now. <laughs> Nixon and his guys were like, corruption, eh? No, we don't want that. What do we what, what do we want laws targeting corruption? Hey, eh? that's not <laughs> corruption. What in this in the Nixon White House? Eh? No, no, say no, again, no, no, I'll no, no. Full of lead, see. <laughs> oh dear me. Um, yeah, so it it doesn't get used much. The RICO stuff after it gets enacted, uh, it was it was too complicated, too yeah. hard. Cops weren't used to hard. Uh, uh, doing this amount of work, right? right? You know, you walk down the street. You see a guy yeah. sticking somebody up, you hit him over the head with your flapjack and yeah. you, you drag him off to jail. That, that was policing. Exactly. All this stuff where you had to collect evidence, wiretaps, no, follow God. the money, put together a case. No, it's way too fucking hard yeah. for cops in the 70s. Yeah. Um, so fast forward to the summer of 79, <clears throat> I got my first real six string, <clears throat> I bought it at the five ben and done. Blakey ran seminars <laughs> at Cornell University. So that's what Blakey's doing. He managed to talk Cornell Uni, which I've been to, by the way. Oh, nice. uh, shout out. Shout out to, I, I went to Cornell University. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> no. um, it's only for, it's for a week. Right. Uh, for a course work. on advanced uh, Advanced AI, but right. uh, um, that would explain a lot. He, 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 he was holding courses there. Lovely place, Cornell, upstate New York. Terrifying. We landed middle of winter. Ice on. I'm in this little jet. Uh, ice oh, on the fucking runway. It's it's right. fishtailing when we landed. <laughs> um, terrifying, but uh, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful place. Carl Sagan's uh, old uh, nice. um, university where he taught, and they have. Uh, they have like a monument to Carl Sagan. It's the solar system, and it's like at scale. So, like in the middle oh, wow. of uh, what's the fucking city where Cornell is in? Um, I'm sorry, I don't know. Ah, oh, fuck. Well, whatever the the, the town is. Mm-hmm. There's the sun in the middle of it, right. and then you know Mercury, Mars, uh, Venus, Earth, all the planets. Mercury, Mars, Earth, Venus, whatever. Um, are all like uh, 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 the have their own little sculptures, right? But yeah, it, like, like scale out. Nice. I think um, that'd be cool to a certain extent. I think you know, if Pluto was really to scale, it would be on the other side of the planet. But <laughs> anywho, some some might, might be a logarithmic scale. I don't know. That's a pretty cool place. Um, uh, 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 something Attica? No, Vivica, Nivica, something Attica. At a, at a fucking upstate, um, really oh god! Oh, oh, god! It's on the tip of my tongue. It's I know. Something no, a, a car. To, to, Ithaca. No, it, that's no, Ithaca. No. Ithaca. Yeah, no, Ithaca. Ithaca. That's it. Okay. Ithaca. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Ithaca, New York. Nice work. Nice. 
Uh, Jesus Christ. Um, so he's running courses. Uh, this is Bob Blakey, back to him. Summer of 79. For detectives, for FBI agents and prosecutors, teaching them the basics of RICO. That's how much he believed in this yes, thing. nine years like he, later. He, he writes this oh law, God. gets it passed. Right. No one's doing anything with it. He spent a decade of his life, at least, trying to get cops to, to, to use the tools that he had given them. Right. Turns out these guys in 79 actually listened well because in the next few years they used RICO to arrest people like Paul Castellano, who ran the Gambino family mm. before John Gotti. Uh, unfortunately for everybody except John Gotti, John Gotti had Castellano killed. Oh. Um, but uh, they had got him with Rico, yeah. yeah. Um, so, and by the way, I mean, I think we've talked about this before, but uh, the t- two of the guys who put John Gotti and Paul Castellano away. Right. Uh, one was Rudy Giuliani, who yeah. was the assistant district attorney Your buddy. Um, under Reagan. Um, and the other one of the other prosecutors was uh, Robert Mueller. Oh. Um, oh, yeah. So We're going to do some other name dropping as well. I, I, I just want to mention Gotti real quick because to show how RICO works, when Gotti goes down in 92, April 2nd, 92, it's for 14 counts of murder, conspiracy to mit mur- murder, uh, loan sharking, racketeering, obstruction of justice, illegal gambling, and tax evasion. So like Blakey was telling these guys, look, don't just wait to watch someone kill somebody. Always follow the money because that's what it's all about. And you can go and you can find so much more if you follow the money. And then after you arrest them, you can take all the money. This is actually crime that pays just in a different way. It pays for the cops. So you can seize all the stuff. And like you said, they started listening. I actually used to have a T-shirt with John Gotti's face on it that I bought in New York uh, in the mid to late 90s. Wow. (laughs) I was quite proud. I don't know what happened to it. It's just gone. But it was one of my favorite T-shirts. Anyway, um, yeah, so these detectives listened in Blakey's course. They went back and they passed on what they had learned to the drug squads. So by 79, RICO became a weapon that was starting to be used in the war on drugs. Right. Meanwhile, in 79, the Carter administration... Um, oh, under the Carter administration, 11 states had legalised pot. Wow. I'm, I was I was sort of stunned to learn this. How many have legalised it now in the US? <laughs> it's about the same number. Yeah. Has it, I, don't, I guess it hasn't changed because for every a- action, there's an opposite and re- equal reaction. So t- I know Texas was one of the ones that had one of the loosest, um, mo- uh, lenient laws about drugs. And as we're going to see probably before this episode's over, over that's going to change as well. So there's going to be a knee-jerk reaction. As of today, the recreational use of cannabis is legal in nine states, Alaska, California, Colorado, Maine, Massachusetts, Nevada, Oregon, Vermont, and Washington, plus the District of Columbia, and decriminalized in another 13 states, plus the US Virgin Islands. Medical use of cannabis is legal in 31 states, the District of Columbia, and territories of Guam and Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. Um... But see, uh, yeah, so under Carter, they were starting to make progress with that. Uh, as we've talked about in the last episodes, the Carter administration was like, yeah, drugs, not really a problem. Yeah. Um, let's, like, ease up on the whole, you know, crazy about drugs thing. <laughs> it's we've, not we we actually one. looked, 
we actually looked at the science. Science says, you know, marijuana's not a problem for people, doesn't lead to crime, not really bad for you. In fact, could be good for you. Heroin, cocaine, very small number of people are addicted to those. That's it's a medical issue. Let's right. just provide methadone clinics uh, and uh, try and you know help them help them out. Um, yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, but yeah, that wasn't to last, obviously. Uh, and there was one group in particular that wasn't happy about this trend towards legalizing pot, and that was. Everybody, uh, the Republic, the Republicans. Actually, before you go on, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to, to steal your thunder. Fox. I just think that segue six six years, and you still you still can't take a segue. No, I still can't what, take a handover. I, I tapped you in. You tapped did, you in, you buddy. <laughs> no, just, just real quick. Um, as much as we talked about Nixon, and he said drugs are number one, and, and we know why he did that for political reasons against the blacks and the Vietnam or whatever. I just find it fascinating that when Carter comes in, like you said, drugs are not the big problem. That are it wasn't the obsession that it was for uh, Nixon. There's no longer the Vietnam War because uh, that's over, so he just has to deal with the draft invaders. But and when he comes to office, he tries to push through a mandatory mandatory health care cost proposal. He's literally trying to get the beginnings of universal health care in the United States. And I just found this fascinating. It passes the Senate, but it fails in the House. So so there. the point is, Carter has got a generally a blank slate when it comes to drugs. He can push it. He can ease back on it. He can do whatever he wants because people aren't, since they're not pounding on the drums of war. He doesn't feel this need from the uh, average American to go after these people. So he's actually got a window of opportunity to sit back and think and take an intelligent approach to the drug issue. Yeah, and then, but then not so much towards the latter part of their administration. Right. But anyway, so um, I was trying to tap you in before by saying one group that wasn't happy about the trend of legalising marijuana is the DEA. Right. Um, a bit like Harry the Gunslinger Anslinger back in uh, 1930 when all of a sudden booze became legal again in the early 30s, and he was like, well, fuck, now what do we do with all of these guys that we've got running around, you know, trying to arrest people for drinking? Right. The D, the head of the DEA at the time, Peter Bensinger, which is a very close to Ansinger, um, he... Uh, you don't have to. You don't have to have the word singer at the end of your name to <laughs> nope. run the DEA, but it sure fucking helps. Um, he wasn't very happy because, like, if marijuana becomes legal over the country, what the fuck's the DEA got to do? Yeah. I mean, chase cocaine and heroin users. There's like twelve of those at right. the time. So he's like, "What the fuck? How are we going to justify our huge budget? My yeah. huge salary?" Exactly. Uh, if help. if if drugs become legal, that's no good. So he starts going balls to the wall to try and scare people about marijuana. Yeah, he and just, he, as he pulls in, in, an anslinger. In, in, the long, sorry, in the long in the in the in in the long tradition of uh, American drug czars and politicians uh, right. just fucking straight up made shit up. <laughs> Let's see what I can pull out of my ass today. Oh, here's one. The idea that marijuana is a valuable therapeutic drug for for nausea for people who are taking chemotherapy, that's bullshit. He said, the American Cancer Society confirms that marijuana represents a more serious cancer threat than cigarettes. 
That's and insane. the Cancer Society went, what? <laughs> <laughs> they said, uh, actually, no. Uh, and a spokeswoman for the Cancer Society said, we have no national policy on marijuana and cancer. We're interested in it, though, mostly for treatment of pain for cancer victims. Oh, my God. That's and he was insane. like, yeah, 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 fucking, I just saw the words marijuana and cancer in the same sentence, and I didn't, I didn't need to read the rest of the sentence, I just figured out what you meant to say. Right. And it fill, filled in the gaps myself. It, it felt right, it felt right. Now, here, here's what makes that statement so outrageous. Um, we don't have to go into the details, but it, roughly in the middle of Carter's administration, his, uh, his drug czar, Peter Bourne, and another guy, doctor that you all know well, <laughs> Andrew Wheel, they put out this statement, and I'll just give you a part of it, and then I'll give you a stat that will blow that away. So they say, they put out a statement, they write up something for Carter that says, drugs cannot be forced out of existence. They will be with us for as long as people find them uh, for relief and satisfaction that they desire. But the harm caused by drug abuse can be reduced. We cannot talk in absolutes that drug abuse will cease, that no more drugs will cross our borders. But if we can be honest with ourselves, we know that it is beyond our powers. But we can bring together the the resources of the federal government intelligently to protect our society and those who suffer. But here's the here's the part. There was a part in this speech that talked about tobacco that someone edited out. And what that part of the tobacco said that at least 55 million Americans smoke cigarettes every day. And as whereas illegal drugs, drug abuse costs the country about 10 billion dollars a year. Cigarette smoking costs the nation $25 billion a year, but that was taken out by someone. So this DEA guy comes along and says that pot is worse than, uh, it's a worse cancer than cigarettes. That's absolutely insane. But he's a white man in a suit, in official position in the government. He says it, and what I don't think we've stressed enough is that even though Carter and Bourne and others like them were like really starting to, in the states that you were mentioning, start loosening up their laws about drugs, the American people, in a very general sense, aren't caught up to them yet. They're, they're still believing the messages that um, it's addictive, you can be physically hurt, it's going to lead to harder, harder drugs. So even though the Carter administration has taken this very intelligent um, step, t- uh, uh, step towards uh, thinking about changing the laws for marijuana, the American people are still have Harry Anslinger bouncing around in their head. So the Carter administration is ahead of its time. So when this guy comes along, the American people are like, okay, right, this is how I, be- this is what I think. This is what I feel is right. And so I'm going to trust you and I'm going to believe in you. So this guy has a very receptive audience to his outrageous claims. Mm. Yeah, he uh, got up in front of the uh, International Association of Chiefs of Police. Right. Or the ICOP. Um, where he said that marijuana was a dangerous drug that required heavier penalties and a bigger investment in law enforcement. Ah. So, of course, they're going to be happy about that. Yeah, um, job security. Qui, qui bono, as our old friend said. Um, so if you're running around convincing people that marijuana requires more investment in police infrastructure, police are going to be happy about it. Right. right. Prisons going to be happy. People who run prisons, cops are going to be happy about it. He got Time magazine to do a cover story on how Colombians were smuggling pot and cocaine into America and Time tacked on a 12-inch sidebar 
quoting the most extreme studies about the dangers of pot smoking. Um, Now, the interesting thing about that is a year earlier, Time had taken the opposite position on marijuana, (laughs) saying, yeah, it's not really a problem. Now... They've done a 180 what? going, oh, it's the worst thing since giving the Negroes the vote. Yeah. <laughs> so um, <laughs> this is the kind of, it, this is like George Orwell, we've always been at war with East Asia stuff again. Like just the media jumping on board with whatever the present government wants people to think. Media is just a propaganda tool of yeah. the elite. Uh, and I wish, that's just one thing I wish people would understand uh, better or or, or accept is that in the West, where we think we have this free media, it's just a propaganda tool a lot of the time. Yeah. It's a powerful Um, one, but it's just a tool. Yeah. It's like, yeah, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, uh, funnily enough, uh, the Time magazine are the only people doing a 180 on uh, the dangers of marijuana. The Carter administration at this point also starts to change their position and starts to get tough on marijuana. Why, Ray? Um, freaking politics. Well, what, what happened, um, I guess we can, you can approach that several different ways, but um, the drugs are, I think it's Peter Bourne, if I remember his name correctly, he goes through something that absolutely embarrasses the Carter administration, ruins his reputation, and um, between that and some other outrageous statements made by people, and again, the American people are still kind of the mentality of Harry Anslinger, Carter's going to have to end up dropping everything that he was trying to do with marijuana and towing the line almost to the point of Nixon. Yeah, so there's a number of things going on uh, in 79 for Carter. As you see, his drugs are Peter Bourne gets himself in a lot of trouble. First of all, he gets caught writing a prescription for one of his young female aides for Quaaludes um, under a fake name. Um, And then he gets outed as having snorted coke at a party. run by Normal, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. It was a Christmas party. I think we all do a little coke during Christmas, but that's me. He, he said, yes, look, I snorted it, but I did not inhale. I did enjoy and it. And they said, how the fuck does that work? I, I, I don't know. I'm a doctor. I'm I not a fucking high. scientist. Um, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he had to resign. So and, and a lot of bad press around that when your uh, drug czar is writing <laughs> illegal prescriptions for quaaludes and snorting coke. You know, it's not a good look. <laughs> but it was. It seemed to be an innocent enough thing. I mean, he shouldn't have done it. It was stupid. But it wasn't the... <laughs> Which, the quaaludes or the snorting coke? <laughs> okay, the quaaludes. The snorting coke was just fucking wrong. But, but you have to remember, in Peter Bourne's... Um, um, Mentality, And he told this to Carter. We don't have to go into it, but the point is, look, marijuana is not a problem. You can sit there, you get high, then you act stupid for a couple hours, and then you go to sleep. We need to focus on heroin. We need to focus on the harder drugs. And when Carter gives a speech on August 2nd, 1977, he talks about just focusing on the stuff that is really doing damage to, to this country. So when Peter Bourne is past the line or past a vial of cocaine, because to him there's been no concrete scientific evidence that it is dangerous, certainly, uh, certainly they haven't done any studies for long-term use. 
it to him, it's not a big deal. It's still stupid. It's still political suicide. But I think this guy was a better doctor than he was a politician. But the question I had for you was, writing the writing the prescription in a fake name, that seemed to be, even though very unorthodox and unusual, it seemed to be generally innocent. It, but what what's going to happen is that um, rumors are going to get around that everybody in the White House is just a pothead, and he seems to be writing prescriptions for more than just one person. And that's another thing that's going to be help him end his career. Yeah, so there's that going on. Meanwhile... You know, there's 54 American hostages in Tehran. Um, every night, Walter Cronkite is closing his evening news broadcast with a running count of the days that these hostages have been held in Iran. Yeah. Inflation is in the double digits. Gas prices were at record highs. Unemployment was high. And the Republicans were getting ready to send Ronald Reagan into battle against Carter. So Carter needed to protect his right flank. He needed to look tough on something. Yeah. And one of the easiest things to look a little bit tougher on was drugs. He knew that Reagan was going to go hard on drugs because Reagan had already been talking about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he'd been he had this anti-drug rhetoric going on when he was the governor of California, um, and so Carter and his administration start to toughen up their, their their view on marijuana. They stopped talking and pushing decriminalisation with the states. Um, and so that's going on. So Carter doesn't get a, a, a free pass uh, either. Now, right. meanwhile, some crazy children's author, Peggy Mann... Oh, I, I just want to mention something about Carter real quick. You're absolutely right. But but to make it more official, Carter's White House announces a new war on marijuana. They're going to bust more dealers. They're going to stop the smuggling. They're going to seize assets. They're going to beef up their street, street enforcement. They're going to start spraying the chemicals in Mexico and Colombia to try to kill the uh, the cocoa leaves. This is right back to Nixon, but he feels like he has to do it, um, I guess, to, to win the next election, just like Truman in the Cold War, as we're going to see again and again. All politics are local. It's going to come right back to self-preservation, no matter the consequences. I'm sorry. I just had to mention that. Peggy Mann. Now, she was sick and tired of know-it-alls like scientists and medical <laughs> professionals telling everyone that marijuana was safe. She figured, she knew as a truth. writer of such, as the writer of such children's classics as "My Dad Lives in a Downtown Hotel" and there are two <laughs> kinds of terrible. She knew better than the medical professionals and the scientists. Good for her. So she wrote a new book called "The Sad Story of Mary Wanna." Or How Marijuana Harms You. Um, Also wrote 12 is Too Old, a novel about tobacco and marijuana and priests' views of little boys. Wow. Um, She started writing articles for magazines like Reader's Digest, uh, Saturday Evening Post, Ladies Home Journal, which these things were reaching millions of housewives in the US, and she was perpetuating the myths about the dangers of pot. So this is where the parents really start to get, again, heavily involved in the fear-mongering through these people like Peggy Mann, who had no medical qualifications, no scientific expertise. She just picked up the stories and decided to to, she was going to go on her own mission 
right. to uh, uh, get rid of marijuana. In, in the next two years, she published a half a dozen articles on the danger of pot smoking, um, how dangerous they are on the highway, stories about parents giving two-year-olds marijuana to smoke, about the proven links between marijuana and heart attacks, cancer, infertility, sterility, impotence, loose sex, and big breasts true. on teenage boys. Oh, you had me going uh, in other time. words, just making shit up. Right. I mean, I, when I was a teenage boy, I wanted big breasts on me, but uh, on my face, not on um, my chest. No, that's a and certain kind of part. she can... She concluded that the main problem was teenage culture. Here's a quote from one of her articles. A recent survey in Atlanta, Georgia, showed that while one-third of non-drug-using kids listen to rock music on the radio three hours or more a day, virtually all drug-using youngsters listen to three or more hours a day to such lyrics as Eric Clapton singing cocaine, cocaine, it's all right, it's all right. And in one year alone, the Reader's Digest sold three million reprints of her first article. Oh, God. Now, first of all, where to start? Because she's gathered all the stories, and she did gather anti-marijuana stories, the point is they're out there. Because people like Harry Anslinger and the um, and uh, Hearst, uh, the publisher, they're putting crazy stories out there with absolutely nothing to back it up. But the point is, she can go and clip these out of news- newspapers, and so she's got these. And, and and it's just insane that if you look hard enough, you can find it. Um, you can find it out there. And the idea of a survey in Atlanta in 1979 or 80 or whenever this is, I mean, I seriously doubt there was any kind of scientific approach to be able to reach to a wide audience of uh, teenagers in this in this very large city. So, again, that to me sounds like equal bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy, crazy stuff. But, also but, in 1979... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry, you want to say something? No, but you're right. But um, um, and I can't remember the guy's name. He he used to work for the Nixon administration, and he figured that the next line of defense, or who would decide the next phase of the drug war, were moms. And now here's three million moms reading Reader's Digest about the horror wars, these horrible stories about uh, marijuana. So it's going to be this groundswell, this grassroots movement that is going to go on the offensive against marijuana, with no scientific science to back it up at all. So, also in 1979, the governor of Texas, Buford T. Justice, and I have a clip from him here. Ass in molasses! Put the evidence in the back. There's no way, no way that you could come from my loins. Soon as I get home, the first thing I'm going to do is punch your mama in the mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I got to go back and watch that. That's my favorite. That's my favorite line from Smokey and the Bandit. And then they're going down the road without the top, and he's like, hold my hat. Put it by my hat, Daddy. You dumbass. He doesn't care about it. Just hold my hat while I drive without the top. Love that movie. First thing I'm going to do is punch your mama in the mouth. Yeah. <laughs> I read, I, I had, I know, sorry if Taylor's listening, more Smokey and the Bandit talk, but I read when um, 
Hal Needham, the writer-director of the film uh, Stunt Legend, gave the script to Burt Reynolds. Burt said, this is the worst script he'd ever seen in his life. And they ended up just ad-libbing most of the movie. They kind of just ad-libbed lines. Yeah. And so I think, like, a lot of Jackie Gleason's lines, uh, too, were probably just ad-libbed. And and you can kind of see in the film, he's just having fucking the time of his life, (laughs) making up (laughs) stupid lines of dialogue. I like this bit at the beginning, too, where the first time you see him, he's pulled over these uh, young guys who were trying to jack Sally Field's car, and uh, he he beats one of them up, tells you, you look tired, you better arrest yourself. And they are all got their hands on the car, and as he's leaving, he says... Might be some vandals around who want to steal something. So you boys just stay here and keep your hands on a car until one of my associates arrive. And don't go home. Don't go to eat. And don't play with yourself. It wouldn't look nice on my highway. Oh, you can think about it, but don't do it. (laughs) Don't play with yourself. You can think about it. But Thinking don't right do it. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, great, great, great fucking, great, great performance by Jackie Gleason. Oh, right. sorry, no, the governor of Texas in 1979 wasn't Booth T. Justice. It was William Clements. Right. Bill Clements, Texas's first Republican governor in 105 years. Damn. Like, I think of Texas as the home of Republican governors, crazy-ass Republican governors, right. but uh, until 1979, they hadn't no, had one no in 105 years. Yeah. Yeah. And he decided to launch a Texan war on drugs, and he decided to appoint Texas' richest businessman to lead it, H. Ross Perot. Did, what were his qualifications again to lead this? He was rich. <laughs> He was rich. Right. Very rich. And that's pretty much it. How did he make his money? Did he have a computer system? I, 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 read, I read the book where he rescued his employees like 20 years ago. I don't remember the details. Mm, fake, fake news, that too. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Good, good, good uh, bit of propaganda that he rescued his employees. I mean, they did get rescued, but not right. like he... Said they did. Yeah, um, uh, yeah Ross Perot, yeah, made his money from IT. Oh. Set up an IT company, sold it, set up another one, sold it, made a shit ton of money. Um, so, yeah, uh, Bill Clements appoints Ross Perot as the guy to lead his war on drugs. Unfortunately, he forgot to tell Ross Perot um, <laughs> before he appointed he him. To he told the him. media first. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Perot was pissed when he found out. Um, but then the media started saying publicly that Perot would suck at the job. Mm. And he said, oh, yeah, you watch. Now, people of our age remember Ross Perot. Kids won't remember this, but he uh, was a perennial presidential candidate. Yeah. He ran against George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. I think he ran again after that a couple of times. In the 90s, late 80s and early 90s, he was always running for president, sort of as an independent slash Republican. Right. Uh, he, before Donald Trump was like the billionaire wild card, yeah. Ross Perot was the uh, original Donald Trump Um Bit bit sort of crazy conspiracy theorist too. Yeah. 
Um, I think he still has like a conspiracy theory newsletter that he puts out. He kind of paved the path for Trump in many ways. Um, although I think Perot is actually quite smart and uh, on the money, yeah. uh, as opposed to Trump, who's just batshit <laughs> bat crazy. crazy. Well, see, the thing for Texas is Texas had one of the um, the weakest laws when it came to pot possession because they had changed. Um, they had listened to some of the commissions. They had changed over time. But if you think about it, they have 400 miles of coast. Um, they've got 600-mile border with Mexico. And it be basically became a haven, haven for drum, drug smugglers bringing it over. And the, this governor's like, I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to put H. Ross Perot in charge of it. And there's going to be – I won't go too far, but there's going to be a 17-member Texas War on Drugs Committee. And they're going to propose some pretty harsh things, even um, – let's see here – drafting um, – Let's see here, but hold on for a second. Uh, significantly st- um, stiffing penalties for delivery of to minors of drugs, trafficking drug paraphernalia manufacturer. You can actually be arrested for bongs and things like that. They're going to take the license away from doctors who are convicted of dealing drugs. Uh, they have laws, but they're going to make them even stronger. And now all uh, prescriptions have to be filled out in triplicate instead of double. Would like that's supposed to do anything? But the point is, this committee with H. Ross Pro in charge puts together all of these things, and they are accepted lock, stock, and barrel and made into law. And so the, the police are going to be militarized. They're going to expand the prisons because they know they're going to need a ton more prisons to take all these people in. And Texas does it all, and Texas is going to end up spending hundreds of millions of dollars, quite frankly, that they don't have because of this tide that is changing in American culture. And they are going to go hardcore uh, going after people for possessing pot. Even if it's just personal use, doesn't matter. Well, that's where we're going to leave it uh, today. We'll pick up with Ross Perot in Texas. Uh, in the next episode, we'll get into Reagan's administration. Um, but before we do that, I want to go out, uh, Ray, with this song uh, for you. Natalie Jabiras uh sent this to celebrate our six-year Facebook Mm. friendship. Mm -hmm. We'll be back next week with more on the war on drugs. You'll never find As long as you live Someone who loves you Tender like I do You'll never find Someone who cares about you the way I do. Oh, I'm not bragging on myself, baby. But I'm the one who loves you, and there's no one else. No one else. You'll never find. It'll take the end of all time.